A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 153 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the ongoing flood of mixed reactions to the Legends announcement, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey, everybody. Yeah, yeah, multiple continuities is kind of the name of the game at this point, I would say. I actually just got done recently, uh, I guess a few weeks ago as of the time you guys are hearing this, uh, putting together some more from the Star Wars Home Video Library videos for the Navajo version of A New Hope, which has actually got some positive feedback from Navajo speakers. Um, put out the Rebels Spark of Rebellion episode, information about the Clone Wars uh, Lost Missions home video set. So, uh, yeah, right now, still kind of straddling that line, thanks to Clone Wars and whatnot still being out there, but I have a feeling that our discussions will start to shift more ever so surely towards story group canon stuff in the future, as that becomes the new things that are out. I actually just started reading Heir to the Jedi, the, uh, early review copy of Heir to the Jedi that arrived the other day, so yeah, story group canon seems to be on its way up, and Legends, unfortunately, uh, sort of on the way out, but we'll see some Legends stuff still within our coverage this time. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we take a look once again at 2014's run of Star Wars goodies. This episode, we'll be focusing on, well, the, um, other stuff of 2014. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right, so this time, if you were to divide things up, we've already looked at books, we've already looked at comics, you could say essentially that this time is basically games, video-based things, and then sort of the what other big events took place in 2014. So we'll start with games. And I would say that probably if there's one notable thing about the video games this year, well, video games and other games in a lot of ways, it's that... Once again, we have a year here where there were no significant Star Wars console video game releases whatsoever. And we've got content packs and such for Star Wars pinball and whatnot, but nothing for the Xbox One, the PlayStation 4, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360. I mean, the last big console Star Wars game release that we got was freaking Connect Star Wars. We're still waiting on DICE 
to put together Battlefront and get that out to us, uh, to hear any word of what's going on with Visceral and the Star Wars game that they're putting together. But at this point, this year in Star Wars games is basically a mixture of non-video games and just a handful of games either for PC or for mobile devices, making this, in my opinion, a relatively weak year for Star Wars video games, albeit a strong year for non-video-based games. Uh, so I guess we start with the video games in this case, and on PC, we had two main things coming to us. One was a re-release, after many, many years, of the classic games X-Wing and TIE Fighter via GOG, that's GOG.com. We also, in terms of new content, had the Old Republic still putting out new expansions. Bear in mind, the Old Republic, according to an interview with GameSpot a while back, we are told is still part of Legends continuity. A more recent Q&A left that sort of up in the air, whether it's Legends or Story Group canon. I would argue that because it relies so much on previously existing Legends continuity, it would be virtually impossible for it to be Story Group canon, but it seems like they're sort of mm -hmm. letting that hang in the air at the moment. We got three different expansions this year, or different uh, continuations of the Old Republic this year. We had Galactic Starfighter, Galactic Strongholds, and the recently released Shadow of Revan. Ah, oh, Shadow of Revan. I, I got to admit, you know, that one got me thinking more and more. I need to go out and get this game. And a lot of my friends out there, uh, they did go out and get the game, jump right back onto that bandwagon, are enjoying it to a degree. Uh, you know... One of those things about Legends, and this being the one thing that continues on, you know, I, and I'm with you. I, I think that that first uh, that f first article pretty much solidified that it's a Legends work as of now. Then that other one, while vague, nothing really made it set in stone that it was actually, you know, a canon type thing. So I still think it's it's Legends 100, which is nice to have something going in Legends. But it was interesting, you know, you mentioned that the console games weren't there, and when that whole death of Lucas Arts happened, I you know we we lost what thirteen thirteen. Uh, there was the Darth Maul game that may have been coming. I mean, there were a lot of games that could have been you know coming out this year or or close to it or being announced this year. Uh, so it was really weird in that regard that we didn't get any of that stuff. But Tor was always like the shining example of awesomeness in a lot of ways. You know, when you saw the Galactic Starfighter, uh, the little trailer for that and stuff, it looks really fun. I I haven't had a chance to play it, but I want to. I really. I, it looks like it has all the fun elements of uh, Battlefront 2's spaceship combat with KOTOR 1 and 2's gameplay. The story sounds incredibly cool. The Shadow of Revan one has me kind of almost scratching my head, though, from a story standpoint. I mean, I, I don't know much about it, but it sounds like Revan comes back with another army, and this time he's so powerful the Sith and the Jedi have to team up against him. And I, I mean, I, I wonder where they're going to end up exiting that story because, I mean, it's going to have to tie into what we get in Legends eventually with Revan's fate. I mean, from what I gather, that's that's got to tie together, right, Nate? Well, I mean, the Shadow of Revan thing is the latest that we see with him, right? Of course, back in the Revan novel, we found him basically ending up in the clutches of the Sith Emperor. And then in the game, there are flashpoints, there are operations and whatnot that go along with playing your main class character storylines. And as mm -hmm. part of those, we got what we thought was an end of Revan's storyline, where it seemed as though oh. he kind of went out like a punk, because he was essentially an enemy to the characters that you'd be playing as, which means, of course, you've got to win. Now we see his return 
I'm kind of hoping that what they're doing, given the fact that the older public is still going, but Legends, for the most part, isn't, and you don't want to get too much into that gray area, that maybe we're sort of leading into what will eventually be an end game, so to speak, for the Old Republic, that this might be the beginning of the end and really ramping up some very strong storylines as we get towards the end. Uh, mm. I myself, I played it a little bit when it went free to play. Uh, it's, I don't know, I'm not an MMO guy. I'm playing Destiny on PS4. I play Defiance on PS3. They are shooter-slash-MMO type games, or persistent world shooters. That's about as close to an MMO as I get into, because I'm not really big into just that genre and that type of gameplay. Um, I loved the stories of KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2. The gameplay, you know, kind of hit or miss depending on, you know, how much you like RPGs and seeing that play out in a video game. So this is one that, honestly, I can't see myself playing to any great degree. I actually stopped playing and just watched YouTube videos of all of the class storylines so I could finally get them onto the timeline and figure out how they all fit together. Um, but this was a good year. For the Old Republic, Galactic Starfighter and whatnot uh, added in player versus player Starfighter combat. Galactic Strongholds adds in the ability to basically set up your own stronghold or have your own uh, guild or clan, whatever you want to call it, uh, starship, a big capital ship to sort of be your base. And then Shadow nice. of Revan added new story content to now give us more about you know the fate of Revan uh, in relation to everything else within the Old Republic. So it's a very strong year for Tor. It's just that that is really the only major Star Wars game that is going at this point in terms of video games. I wouldn't include TIE Fighter and X-Wing being re-released, as cool as that is, as a big PC game for the year. Because these are games that are decades old. The, I did hear they updated the graphics a little on the X-Wing and the TIE Fighter game. But yeah, I, I'm right there with you. That was a fun game as well. Uh, I mean, it was nice that it was like the third installment. It wasn't just, you know, X-Wing and then TIE Fighter mixed together, but kind of an addition to. So kind of nice to have that. I kind of hope they do more of that with, with some of the older games, make them available via Steam or GOG or whatever. Video game-wise, that really just leaves us with the apps for this year. Um, the vast majority being iOS games, although there are uh, Android versions of some of these, of course. We had... And we can go into them bit by bit here as we go along. Um, Assault Team, Star Wars Commander, Star Wars Galactic, Defense, and, albeit not really as a game, we had Star Wars Scene Maker, and of course in terms of apps we had that aforementioned Star Wars Journeys, the Phantom Menace book that we talked about back in the books episode. So Assault Team, Commander, Galactic Defense, and Scene Maker. Um, I personally really have only spent any time playing one of these. The other ones really didn't appeal to me at all. So, Mark, I know you've gotten into some of these. You tackle these first. All right. Well, okay. So I do have all these on my phone. Uh, I don't have the Star Wars Scene Maker, but Star Wars Assault Team and Star Wars Commander and the Star Wars Galactic Defense. Uh, I did get all of them, and I was tinkering around with them. The one, though, that really stands out for me as the jewel of them that I'm enjoying the most was the Star Wars Commander. Uh, it had a very uh, Dune 2000 feel. Uh, there's other games out there where you build your own uh, bases and stuff, and you've got to collect coins and, and material to build more things and build your army up and then go on the missions. But there are also so many little negatives to this game that just drive me up a frippin' wall. Uh, I've maxed out currently at the story arc uh, at level 7, uh, but there's a Darth Vader one that's going on right now, limited time that I'm doing, and... Uh, 
And and it gets me to that spot where I'm just like, okay, you know, with Legends, we had a, a hierarchy of of what was canon, and and the video games always were in this pseudo bottom tier that like the story elements were considered some, and 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 it fell that now with everything being canon, I'm like, okay, so everything's canon, and I don't know, I'm still in that old mindset, like. I, I could care less one way or the other if this game actually was canon, the story in it. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, now that they've said that there's this whole one canon, I do hope that they're taking these things into consideration too. Or they're going to be specific and be like, all right, well, all the app games, all these type of games, you know, we're not going to include it unless we make a comic or something like that. You know, like I wish they had a plan in that regard because it's an interesting story that's going on. You know, I picked the empire side. The downside to this game though, is there's a lot of things they don't tell you right out the bat. I had a lot of these crystals and I, I spent them all on the stupid stuff, not realizing that droids were the most important thing in this whole damn game. And you can only have, I think three or four of them at a time. I think you have four. Uh, I only have two because I spent all my stupid crystals on stupid junk that I could buy later, not knowing that I was never going to be able to buy a droid or upgrade my droids. So the whole game hinges on my two droids. You know, I can build two things at a time. I can clear two things at a time. I can upgrade two things at a time. Uh, and, you know, that's fine at first. You know, you're upgrading a couple seconds, a minute, you know, you, two minutes. Then once you get into, like, level three on something, you know, the first level, it's it's 30 seconds. Second level, you're about a minute. You get to the third level, you're looking at 14 minutes. Level four, you're looking at a day and something. You want to do a level five, you're looking at a five to seven day wait for that droid to build something. And some of the levels depend on that. Like you get to a level and it's like, you need to have level five headquarters. Well, that's going to be 275,000 coins or, or, or uh, material, but you don't have enough of the, the things to, to create it because you can only build so many with the level of, of headquarters you have right now. So, I mean, you really have to go out of your way and it is a very long waiting game, waiting for those droids to finish the thing so you can build the next thing you need or wait for the coins to build up so you can then upgrade one more thing. And it just, that aspect of it really ticks me off, takes the fun out of the game. I, I, I find where I play the game in very short bursts. Uh, I'll come in, I'll play it really fast, and I'll leave. Another aspect of the game that really drives me nuts is the gameplay. Like, I can go and attack a base, I, I can just drop my troops off and they go and do their own thing. I can't, I can't send them anywhere. Uh, when I'm being attacked, the people just attack. I have turrets and stuff and that's it. That's, but when I'm attacking other bases, oh, the computer, it can send out all sorts of troopers and all sorts of stuff. And, and the rebels have these Wookiees that are so damn hard to kill. And when they attack your base, I swear to God, I had like four level five rocket turrets and the sucker just one Wookiee took them all out, took out my entire base. I'm like, are you kidding me? Let the Wookiee win my arse. I was so mad. <laughs> And there's so many aspects of that game where they really they force you to want to buy because you can you can log in with your credit card, buy crystals all day long and buy all the material you need. And no, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. It's a it's a little app game. And that's I, I get what they're doing, but that takes all the fun out of it. It makes it where I can only play it in fits and spurts. So so while of the games, that's the one I like the most. It has a lot of flaws as a fun game. <laughs> Galactic Defense, uh, that one was similar to this game in the aspect of how you do the missions. There's kind of like a, a trail that you go through and you can arm it up and then uh, troops come through and you got to make it work. After about three levels of that, although I quickly grew bored, and had the same issue I have with the Commander one. I, I like to be able to control my troops more. I mean, I, I compared Commander to Dune 2000 in that game. You can control all the troops, send them to attack this building and then send them to attack that one. That element's missing for the player. 
in the game. And and that I think for me on both of the Galactic Defense and Star Wars Commander, that's that's the downside to those. Uh, Assault Team was a weird one. I started playing it and then I got distracted by Commander, so I didn't get too deep into it. Uh, but it was kind of fun. I was playing as Han Solo and got a kick out of that. And I have no idea about the scene maker because I, I, I've been so wrapped up in that commander game and waiting for things and trying to max everything out. And, and the one upside to the commander, though, is is you can move your base around as much as you want, reconfigure it, and it never costs you. You don't have to rebuild anything. Like with Dune, if you want to do that, you had to destroy it, rebuild something new. So it's kind of cool in that regard. I've rebuilt my base over and over again. And that's mainly the one thing I'm doing between missions to kill time is just upgrading the heck out of my base and upgrading what little ships I can through, you know, the uh, research department. Cause yeah, I can, I can do that. It's like, you got the two droids that can build, but you can do research all day long. As long as you got money. <laughs> I don't know. Have you played any of these, my man? Uh, played one, seen the others. Um, I'm not really a big real time strategy game guy. Uh, it's why, uh, Halo Wars. I'm trying to play through the Halo franchise now. I just, uh, uh, because of one of those big, you know, sales right around Thanksgiving time, I was able to get my hands on an Xbox One. So I'm playing through the Halo Master Chief Collection. I just finished up Reach that I had free on the Xbox 360 from years ago. Uh, when I first signed up for Gold, they did like a, you know, get Xbox Live Gold, get a free game kind of thing. But Halo Wars is the one I'm kind of eyeing with trepidation because it's a real-time strategy game. And as cool as I might think the franchise is, I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to get into that. Um, same thing with Star Wars. I've never really gotten into any of the Star Wars RTS games. So Star Wars Commander, didn't really get into. I'm not a big tower defense guy, so galactic defense, not so much. Now that I know there are stories with them, I'm probably going to wind up looking up YouTube videos or something in order to see what the story is to put it on the timeline. Um, the one of these I really did get into a little bit was Assault Team. Uh, Assault Team, I thought, kind of looked like a card game to begin with, and to an extent it still sort of does when you play in terms of how you manage your characters and how they look on the screen, but mm -hmm. it's not really a card game. It, it it sort of is. It's kind of a weird uh, scenario there. Fairly simplistic, fairly monotonous, um, interesting, certainly better than that Force Commander game or whatever it was that came out a while back, or Force Collection game, I think is what it was called, uh, that horrible digital card game that I think has died a horrible death since. Um <laughs> This is one that I finally got to the point where I was like, I'm done, and I went through and watched, again, watched, believe it or not, the entire thing through YouTube videos to get the story to summarize for the timeline. It's just, these games are, I mean, they are what they are. They're apps. They are repetitive. They are monotonous. And oh, yeah. they're free, initially. They are designed for microtransactions. That's sort of the, uh, the, the big debate in gaming, or one of the big debates in gaming right now is... How to monetize games. Do you simply sell a game, say on a console, for 60 bucks? Do you sell a game on the console for 60 bucks, but then also have other content as downloadable content later? DLC. Uh, Destiny just released its first expansion, which is essentially DLC. Um, the Dark Below. Do you then pay for the game and then pay for that? How many times are gamers willing to actually do that on top of a game they've already paid for? And on the other hand, can you make a game cheaper like Assault Team, Commander, Galactic Defense, make it cheap or free, how do you set it up so that you can basically monetize it through all these microtransactions? Make it so you can speed up the game by buying little things here and there. And they're counting on what they refer to as the whales in the audience, the people who have a bunch of disposable income who will just pay and pay and pay and pay to plow their way through a game. Whereas you have people like us, we're mostly adverse to doing that to pay 
for elements in these free games. So we sit back and say, nope, and we just wait. My wife is a huge player of things like Candy Crush. Basically, if it's a Candy Crush-esque diamond or jewel-based game where you just <laughs> turn them and match them, she's playing them constantly. And when she finishes one, she moves on to another one. But she never pays a cent. She'll play a couple of them, have one going on her iPod, have one going on her phone, and when one of them gets to the point where, sorry, you have no more turns left for 24 hours or 10 hours or whatever it is, you'll just yeah. sit to the side and play the other one. Um, it's, it's interesting, I guess, to see Star Wars going in this direction more. Um, Disney did say that they were going to cut back on the heavier Star Wars games, the console and PC games, that they were going to go more towards licensing through Lucasfilm, um, which they have to EA, you know, DICE and, and Visceral and all, and that they are going to focus in on a lot of app-based casual games. Now we're certainly seeing that in action. And I would be curious to see to what extent they're actually making a decent profit off of this, how much they're making on those microtransactions relative to getting the game created in the first place. Because from what I understand, app-based games with microtransactions, if you can actually get them going and get people buying the microtransactions, are ridiculously profitable compared to making a full-blown console game for Xbox One, PlayStation 4, or whatever it might be. Um, as for Scene Maker, cool concept, have not checked it out myself. And I guess, and I think we'd probably be remiss if we moved past games without mentioning one other thing. Not a biggie, but if you play Sims 4, yes, you can now have Star Wars clothing. See, and that's my wife's thing. She loves the Sims game. She cannot wait to upgrade her computer to get the Sims. Uh, so that would totally be up her alley, especially if they had Amara Jade. She's a big fan of Amara Jade. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned something about how they switched to the apps, uh, the, the casual gaming, and they're doing less console games, that Disney's moved that direction. And I think in one aspect that that's, that's a real smart way to go because it, it allows the console game that's coming out to really kind of flesh itself out and and not have to, you know, rush itself. They could take as long as they need, and when it comes out, it can be a benchmark-style game and, you know, remind everybody that, you know, this is the game we want, you know, kind of thing. You think back on, on it, you know, everybody loved the X-Wing game. Everybody loved the, the Battlefront games when they came out. You know, the Starfighter game had its contingent of people that really were digging on it. Uh, the Republic Commando, you know, I mean, there were games out there that while it was hit or miss with other fans, there were some of us that really enjoyed them, you know, KOTOR being one as well. And having it where it's not like one of those years where you've got like eight or nine different Star Wars games that are like, eh, run of the mill. You have like one that's just a really good one with all these other app ones that are that are just the, the casual ones. I think that'd be a really cool direction to go once we start seeing those games. You know, if if we get Battlefront next year, right? And that's the only one we get all of next year, you know, and then the year after that we get one really good console game, you know. I, I think that would be a cool way to go. I at least I would dig that. I would certainly much prefer quality over quantity when it comes down to it. Um Connect Star Wars is fun to a degree, but it never really reached the level people expected of it. And I mean, beyond that, we don't really see much in the way of Star Wars console games. There were a lot of folks who were, for instance, disappointed with the length of The Force Unleashed 2 when it came out. It's just, Star Wars used to be a franchise that set standards when it came to video games, like Dark Forces. Not so much anymore, and it definitely needs to get back to that. We'll see what DICE and Visceral and uh, the others working with EA are able to do. Speaking of other games, though, 
Not all games are video games. There are more traditional ones out there, and Fantasy Flight Games has been the one putting out most of those in terms of role-playing games, miniatures games, and card games. Uh, on the role-playing game front, uh, we knew going into it when they announced that there would be three different Star Wars role-playing lines coming from Fantasy Flight Games. They had Edge of the Empire at first. Edge of the Empire is sort of on the fringes. Uh, it's not so much focused on Empire versus Rebellion, so much as it's focused in on uh, the life of a Fringer, the scoundrels, the outlaws, the bounty hunters and such. Now, with that, is that is that similar to the role-playing games like the ones that I have right now? Uh, like the New Jedi Order role-playing, the Dark Side one, those ones. Is that similar to that style of gameplay? Yeah, I mean, the all of Fantasy Flight Games RPG stuff works like a traditional paper and pencil RPG. The biggest difference is... Well, okay, two differences. One is the way the dice work. And we've talked about this, I think, before, yeah. where the dice are narrative. It's not, you know, here's a number you've got to beat, roll the dice, and that's it, like West End Games or Wizards of the Coast was. It's more of your situation adds a certain number of certain type of dice into a pool. Mm. Uh, the enemy you're going up against or the situation you're going up against adds a certain number of dice to that same pool, and the entire pool is rolled at once. And depending ah. on what cancels itself out, it not only has implications in terms of whether you succeed or not at something, it has elements built into the way the dice work to add complications, extra miraculous feats, basically guiding Ooh. the storyteller or the game master into making more of an intricate, uh, varied tale than simply succeed or fail. But it is effectively, you know, mm -hmm. it's a paper and pencil roll the dice RPG. And, and, and the structure of the book is itself, is it like the way the old ones are where you've got like, you know, a character class here with some detail about it, mm -hmm. a planet here with some detail and weapons, all that. So it's, it's a basic run of the mill, just the new stuff. Cause I remember seeing the cover with the Boston on it. Uh, and just, I, I just wanted to get it. You know, I, I got all the old ones. I've never played any of them, but they were always this really cool source of really hard to find information back in the day. Uh, so I ended up getting most of them and it just got to that point where I just started collecting them, but they started, they, they rechanged the format, went with that, uh, square style books. And when that happened, they really started flooding the market. And then I, I had to back away and then they all stopped. Uh, and that's when this came out. So I was curious, you know, when it came out, it was like, ooh, this looks like fun. But at the same time, with that flood that happened right before the last die out, I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to get in yet. <laughs> well, I mean, this is very much like the old lines where you have some books that are source books. They're about background information, creating characters, gear and stuff like that. And mm. you've got some that are basically uh, adventures, pre-made missions to go on and that sort of thing. I mean, it's very much uh, like what we saw with the other two companies. In this case, though, instead of it being one product line, like I was saying, you get the Edge of the Empire for the Outsiders, the Outer Rim, the Smugglers and such. You have Age of Rebellion, specifically based around uh, Empire versus Rebels. Uh, in that case, Air Edge of the Empire, you can always tell it's the white covers. Age of Rebellion always has the red covers. And this year saw the launch of the beta, at least, of Force and Destiny, which is the one based on uh, Force users, predominantly uh, with a black cover. I will say... The other thing that makes these unique is that as you're playing, you are motivated by and stories are in part crafted or shaped by a specific feature in each game that has to do with your character's background. In uh, Edge of the Empire, it's what's called obligation. Like maybe you owe money to the huts. Maybe you uh, have a debt to pay to 
a family member or you have a favor that you were expected to do and now someone needs to pay it back or something. Uh, Age of Rebellion has what's called duty. You know, what is your sense of duty? What is your duty to? How does it compel you? Force and Destiny has nice. what's referred to as morality. And it not only shapes your actions, but each different part of your morality choices when you create your character has a strength and a weakness to your character that can draw you to the dark side and there are ways to redeem yourself within the game. Oh, um, cool. It's much more narrative-based. Uh, but a lot of stuff for the RPGs this year. For Force and Destiny, we just had the beta rulebook. Uh, the core rulebook and the first of the real materials aren't going to come out until next year. Looks very cool. Um, probably the most intriguing of the three different product lines at this point for uh, Fancy Flight Games and stuff. But, again, we haven't seen more than the beta this time around. I've done reviews of most of this stuff on YouTube and whatnot. Uh, mm. Edge of the Empire, we got quite a bit. We got Enter the Unknown, Sons of Fortune, Dangerous Covenants, The Jewel of Yavin, and Far Horizons. Um, Jewel of Yavin uh, being an adventure, Sons of Fortune being sort of a setting uh, of material. Uh, Enter the Unknown, Dangerous Covenants, Far Horizons, focusing specifically on uh, certain classes of characters and building them up. So a mixture of source books and adventures. An Age of Rebellion really got going this year after its beta last year with uh, its core rulebook, massive, massive core rulebook of how to use it. Uh, around the same time, the Game Master Kit, which comes with like a screen and a separate little adventure with it. Uh, Onslaught at Arda 1, which is its first adventure module. And for those who are trying to learn to play the game, uh, as with Edge of the Empire, a really cool boxed beginner game with its own little adventure and maps and tokens and dice, teaching you how to play as you go. Uh, and then, of course, as with what they did with Edge of the Empire, there's a follow-up adventure to the one that's in the box that is released free online, in this case called uh, Operation Shadow Point. So lots of good, solid materials out there, but the focus this year seems to be on the launch of Age of Rebellion. While Force and Destiny seems the most intriguing, its launch is presumably going to be the focus for FFG in 2015. Uh -huh. Now, the last question I got for you, and you may have answered this before, but I think it probably bears asking again. These are all set in canon, correct? Or are they legends? Far as I know, they are all legends. But again, like with the Old Republic, there's a level of confusion to it because they started this product line when Legends was the official continuity. They don't have Legends written on them. But I've talked to some of the creative folks behind the scenes with Fantasy Flight Games, and they're basically saying you know, tell a good story and just kind of go with it. That they're not being given any kind of direction as far as uh, story group canon versus legends. I will say that I feel as though, and I haven't finished reading uh, Onslaught at Arda 1, but in looking at Far Horizons, it seems to have, it's one. It's the most recent Edge of the Empire book, it seems mm -hmm. to have less EU-based stuff or legends-based stuff than some of the other ones did. And looking at Force and Destiny, Force and Destiny, all these beta books have a special adventure in them, a very small one, that is not found in any other materials. If you don't get the beta, you miss out on that adventure because the one in the core rulebook is different. And the Force and Destiny beta has an adventure where you're basically a group of Force sensitives going to this old Sith um, burial site, tomb, to find hidden secret information that could be of use to you. And mm. absolutely everything about that mission is ridiculously generic, to the point where, when they're talking about the Sith whose tomb this is, it simply says, an ancient Sith, whose name is lost to history. 
Oh, screw you! If you're gonna <laughs> do it that generic, don't even bother with an adventure. Um, it's it makes the, the fact that we have the whole legend story group canon issue going on right now makes it somewhat um, odd looking at mm. these games in terms of how much background info can they provide, how much can they tie it into anything else. For the most part, they try from time to time to tie into other things. But mm. as we await a ruling on which exactly it's going to fall under, I have a feeling that unfortunately we may be seeing more generic stuff as we go forward, which, you know, is fine if you're going to be doing something that's just for gaming itself because you're looking for source yeah. material. But for those of us who are big Legends or EU fans who want more background data, and that's why a lot of times we used to buy the RPG books and not mm-hmm. play the game, mm-hmm. that's not <laughs> happening really right now as much. Well, yeah, that's that's where I'm curious. Like this, we could then find out that this like son of Dathomir is one of those things that could straddle and fall into both canons up into where, you know, if they start dealing with things that are rebels, obviously, then that part wouldn't be legends and vice versa. It is weird, though, that, that these are all falling under there. I do kind of wonder if down the road we're going to get a definitive like, you know, from here forward, these are all set in canon, you know, from these other people, because. You know, when that announcement came out, that did kind of seem to be what was going to be the case, that everybody was going to be on board. And yet you've got all these creative teams out there with all these other companies creating their products, their games, their their apps and all this stuff. And it's like, are they really able to to gather it all together? Or are they just really only focusing on the small group, the, the comics and the books and a few of the key video games? That brings us into another FFG product. That is the Star Wars Living Card Game. Again... For those who've forgotten since the last time we talked about this, uh, the LCG works a little bit differently than a TCG or CCG. It is a card game, but you do not buy regular booster packs with random cards inside them. You buy the core card game, Star Wars The Card Game, as it's called, a boxed set. And then each time you buy an expansion, it's what's referred to either as a deluxe expansion, which is another boxed set, or a force pack. And a force pack will always, always, always have the exact same cards in it as any other force pack under that same name. So you know exactly what cards you're getting, and they come in groups of six, uh, thought of as objective sets. And you build your decks using the objective sets. So it is customizable, but the randomness that exists in most CCGs or TCGs does not exist with a uh, with an LCG, a living card game. What we had this year was that we had seen the Hoth cycle of expansion packs or force packs wrap up last year. So this year we got what's referred to as the Echoes of the Force cycle, which was a series of force packs entitled Heroes and Legends, Knowledge and Defense, Darkness and Light, Join Us or Die, Lore of the Dark Side, and It Binds All Things. Uh, Somewhat focused more on Legends continuity characters and such than we had necessarily seen in the Hoth cycle. And uh, that seems to be a trend that may be continuing, as this year we saw the announcement of, but not the launch yet of, the next cycle of Force Packs, which is the Rogue Squadron cycle that'll start next year. Uh, Gotta love Rogue Squadron. Yeah, I've never really gotten into the card games that much. Uh, Really, for me, the only card game I've ever gotten into in life has been Magic the Gathering. See, I love card games, although honestly, I prefer them digitally because a lot of times I don't have people to play with unless I'm going to harass my wife into playing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So I like it when they release these and have a digital version, like Magic the Gathering has its digital version out there. Um, 
the LCG, pretty fun. I have not only been reviewing each of these products, all of these Fantasy Flight Games products, as they come out on YouTube, I do buy them, and it's not stuff they provide me to review. I do go out and get them. Um, I get these because I like the cards and I collect them, but it's a fun game to play, and I do have a demo game of this up on uh, the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chronoradio, C-H-R-O-N-O-R-A-D-I-O, my old podcast name. Um, this is a fun one. Uh, I never really got heavily into playing it as much as just kind of checking out the cards and thinking about the strategy of it. I never really got into the TCG from uh, Wizards of the Coast back in the day, but I was a huge player of the CCG from Decipher, the one that eventually, when it died, gave birth to the Wars franchise that I wound up writing original fiction for um, in the last few years here, the Battle of Phobos series and everything. Um, this game is... And I, I like it a lot. I will say that I doesn't, it doesn't really feel like there's a lot of synergy here. The different games don't all use the same mechanics. Like, if you had used, played the TCG and the RPG and the miniatures game from Wizards of the Coast, a lot of the mechanics were similar. A lot of the terminology was similar. Not as much so with Fantasy Flight games. Each game is sort of a distinct entity that is tailored to what's best for that game. We also, speaking of card games from Fantasy Flight Games, have a teeny tiny game called Empire vs. Rebellion. I actually just put up a review of this on YouTube and just recorded a demo game, though I'm betting it's going to probably be a few days before I ever get that file up, that video up of the demo game. It's basically um, a two-person game, no expansions or anything, little box set is everything that you need, uh, runs about 13 bucks, 9 bucks, most places online. And it's based on essentially being a reskin of an old Fantasy Flight Games game uh, that put pit the CIA versus the KGB from the Cold War. And it, think of it as somewhat strategy-based, somewhat more complex blackjack. One character plays as a rebel, one character plays as an imperial. Each round has an event card that's out there. And aside from other effects that it may cause, these event cards have... Basically, a target value, like 21 in Blackjack, and a set limit on how many cards you can play. And in that round, both sides are trying, with different cards, with different powers and such, to get as close to that target value as possible without going over, basically going bust. And at the end of the round, when both sides pass in a row, whichever side it is that is the closest without going over, barring any other card effects and such, uh, winds up winning that round and gets whatever the victory points are from that event card from that round. You play another event card for the next round, it may have a different value on it that you're trying to hit, a different limit on how many cards you can play, and round after round you play it until one side or the other has gained seven victory points as you add up the little victory point number on all the events that you've won. Um, it plays out like kind of a cross between, like I said, Blackjack and a trading card game. There are no expansions to buy, and really very little in terms of customization. Each round you play a strategy card out of the five you can choose from, but both sides have five identical strategy cards. Um, both sides have a bulk of their deck made up of identical cards, uh, several different types of cards with different values, two, three, four, five. The only big difference between the sides is that each side has eight unique character cards that act almost like an ace. It could be one value or another. In this case, a six or a one as opposed to an 11 or a one like an ace in blackjack. Um, 
And the only real customization that you do is that when you are setting up your decks at the beginning of the game, of your eight character cards, you choose four and shuffle mm-hmm. them in, and the other four sit off to the side and don't come into play unless very specific circumstances warrant it. You know what this sounds like is Pazak from KOTOR, you know, in-universe style, because that was how, how it worked in-universe, was you had your cards and you could use certain ones, and some of them had double value, some had triple value. I mean, it's, it's very much more like what you would think of as a regular card game than a trading card game, in most respects. Uh, I find it fun, but there is no new lore added into it, no story added into it. All the artwork is from the films. In fact, all the artwork, except on one card that shows Coruscant, is stills from the classic trilogy. Um, mm. It is not a super complex game, but I find it very fun, very fast-paced, and if you're trying to just dip your feet into card games for the first time to go beyond regular card games and into things like the LCG, this makes a nice sort of a gateway drug, so to speak, into that. <laughs> and it's ridiculously cheap. I mean, 13 bucks for this game is an absolute steal. It sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like fun to have at a convention. Anybody uh, going to Celebration Anaheim want to bring this game I will play? That brings us into miniatures games from Fantasy Flight Games. We saw two announcements this year, but products that won't be hitting until next year are uh, Armada and Imperial Assault. Imperial Assault is, looks more like the miniatures game we got from Wizards of the Coast years back. Uh, you use play surfaces with distinct specific places to play. Um, you can play a skirmish mode, a campaign mode. They've already announced a whole bunch of expansions for that that add in new miniatures and such into the game. Um, Armada is kind of like X-Wing, but we'd ask that question with X-Wing, what are they going to do when they get into bigger ships? Because you've already got the small ships like the X-Wing, the bigger ships like the YT-1300, the epic-scale ships like the Rebel Transport and the Tantive IV. What happens when they try to do something like a Star Destroyer? It'd be freaking mm-hmm. gigantic and the size of a table. Well, the answer is... Instead of going that route with X-Wing, they have this new game, Armada, that uses those uh, like Star Destroyer-sized ships as the main size of ships. And when it comes to Starfighters, you have small groups all together on one miniature piece acting like a flight of Starfighters. But it's said to play very similar. I haven't had a chance to play it myself because it is not out yet. Looks very cool. Sounds like the difference between fleet fighting and dogfighting. Pretty much, yeah, for the most part. That the modeling on these ships and stuff is something that really had me interesting. The price tags got me shying away so far, but man, there's some really cool looking ships and stuff out there coming out. And this is another one of these that has a ton of expansions already announced. My pre-orders have gone through the roof with this stuff. Uh, of course, the miniatures game that is out right now already is X-Wing, which is an excellent miniatures game. I love X-Wing. Um, this year saw a lot of new releases. It saw Imperial Aces, which came with two uniquely colored TIE Interceptors and some new pilot cards. We saw Wave 4 of the miniatures. They came with the Z-95 Headhunter, the E-Wing, the TIE Phantom that can cloak, and the TIE Defender. We saw the release of the epic scale ships, the Rebel Transport and the Tantive IV, uh, in terms of much greater size, each one using two rather large bases um, to be used. We saw the Rebel Aces pack, which included a uniquely painted B-Wing and a uniquely painted A-Wing. And we recently saw Wave 5 release, which only included two ships that are of that larger scale. I call it medium because it's between the epic giant size and the smaller ones. Uh, The VT-49 Decimator and the YT-2400, also known as the Outrider. And uh, Mm -hmm. as a side note here, we also did this year see the release, if you want to call it that, 
of Dying is Never a Plan, an X-Wing scenario that is unofficial, that was put together by yours truly and John Jackson Miller based on a sequence in A New Dawn that's being used at various uh, comic shop and gaming store appearances by uh, John Jackson Miller. Gotta say, it's a heck of a year for X-Wing, but boy, some of this stuff, the delays have been brutal. And now, the, with the YT-2400 and that VT-49 uh, Decimator, those are also came with some EU cards, right? Didn't, didn't one of them come with Mara Jade and the other one come talking about the Outrider flat out? Yeah, but I mean, that's the way that X-Wing tends to work. A lot of the pilots. Because what you got is when you're playing, um, you have your miniature, which represents the ship. And then you have to have a certain pilot, and you have what are referred to as the ship cards, which are your, essentially um, a picture of a, the ship, but then it has your a character name, Mara Jade, Lando Calrissian, whatever, and then your stats and abilities that are possibly unique to that character. But then you also have, among all your different upgrades you can do to the ships, sometimes crew upgrades, which include characters that are on your ship who aren't necessarily piloting it. And tons mm. and tons and tons of those crew cards... And the ship cards that have the pilots have been EU. But again, this is a game that started before the announcement about Story Group Canon. So there's this sense that this is all Legends and they're free to draw from Legends characters. If they ever were to say, though, that this is Story Group Canon instead of Legends, it probably wouldn't matter all that much because it's set in the classic trilogy era. And all it would really mean is that an alternate universe version of that particular EU character like Mara Jade exists in Story Group Canon somewhere but may yeah. bear little to no resemblance to the one that we're used to from Legends. Well, and I guess that was my next question, is like the Mara card, does it say anything about her being a Jedi or an Emperor's Hand, or is it just very generic with just a name? I mean, it could have been any female. Well, I mean, if you're talking about um, the X-Wing game, aside from the character name on the card and sometimes an image on the card, there is no lore on these cards whatsoever, really. Um, oh, unless cool. you have a card that has no ability and there's lore to fill in where the ability would be. Um, the LCG is a little bit different. It's got a little bit of lore sometimes, usually maybe a quick quote or a quick comment. But it's nothing like the lore that we got that really deepened the continuity from the CCG that Decipher put out. Nothing even remotely mm. to that extent. Well, see, with the X-Wing one, that actually gets me kind of excited to see that Mara Jade's there, but it's just her name and, and her likeness of a character, but nothing beyond that, no backstory or anything. If that were to come across as canon, that kind of tickles me because, I, I, I mean, that, for me, that was, like, if Legends never continues on, just the names of these characters moving over is cool because, you know, for someone who's loved Legends like we have for so long, you know, these characters have been around for a long time. You know, when you've been dealing with with, you know, Luke Skywalker, you know, from the movies on, and you've been following his life, you know, these are integral characters. And, you know, just to not even have that name be affiliated with what's the canon of Star Wars anymore, it, it just, it, it sometimes leaves a, a sour taste in my mouth. I'd, I'll take even a, you know, just the name only came across. <laughs> and if you want to figure out which characters are all wrapped up in this, of course, uh, be sure again to check out that YouTube channel. I've got individual looks at every single one of these releases as they came out, what cards are with it, what characters, everything is on there, so we don't necessarily need to go into all the detail right now. So we moved from games into video products this time around, and we actually had several this time around uh, in 2014. Going back, of course, to the series that we had thought was over, The Clone Wars, this year saw the release of The Clone Wars the Lost Missions, first on Netflix, actually first in Germany, then on Netflix, 
then wider release through places like iTunes, and then finally on DVD and Blu-ray. And on StarWars.com, we saw the release of the story reels of the Utapau arc, four episodes that didn't air uh, with Clone Wars Season 6 or the Lost Missions, which were released as essentially the animatic-style version, the story reels of them, which were then included on the Blu-ray release of home video, um, but not included on the DVD home video release, presumably for lack of physical space uh, on the discs. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to really see many of these. I mean, I, I did see uh, The Clone Wars, you know, on Netflix. I got Netflix back, so I've got that back again. I'm all excited about that. Yeah, this was a pretty good season. I mean, this was the Order 66 arc. This was the weird buddy comedy arc of Jar Jar and Mace Windu. This was Yoda's arc going to Moraband and all that stuff. Uh, and then, of course, uh, mixed in with all of that, we had the Clovis arc that shows Anakin being borderline abusive. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I think it was a pretty good set of episodes. I'm glad we got a chance to see it, and we've talked about it in depth uh, before. Uh, we talked about it with uh, episodes of Rebels Roundtable, or the Rebels Roundtable prelude, uh, as we were about to get that series going for Rebels and whatnot uh, as a podcast and all. Um, pretty good stuff, although uh, I would warn those out there checking this out that some reviews that focus on the Blu-ray release refer to, like, at uh, High Def Digest, one of the premier sites for reviews of high-definition video, uh, mm -hmm. refer to the story reels as being something that is not a Blu-ray exclusive. There are no exclusive Blu-ray goodies. That is crap. That is bull. The DVD version does not have the Utapau story reels. The only one that does is the Blu-ray. So either watch it on StarWars.com while they're there, or get the Blu-ray if you want those. Oh. Well, you know, the ones I liked on that were the five-story and the lost ones. I mean, those were the ones that I really... I, I felt like there was a resonance that those were stories that needed to be told. The rest, while I enjoyed them, I, you know, they, they could have slid past me and I'd have been just as okay. But those ones were ones that I felt were critical to the saga. Speaking of the lost one, by the way... Um, we had had a discussion on here, and I think over on Republic Forces Radio Network slash Rebels Roundtable as we were making the transition, that um, uh, if Dooku arranges the things that he is said to have arranged uh, before the Phantom Menace in The Lost One, when they're talking about those past events, that it must mean that Dooku was working with Sidious as a Sith or a potential Sith prior to the events of Phantom Menace, which then you know, causes some changes to what we know of the continuity in terms of him leaving and eventually being seduced to be a Sith after Qui-Gon's death. There was recently a Q&A held that has videos of it up on StarWars.com now, and Dave Filoni flat out said, yes, this alters our perception. It means that Dooku must have been doing something with Sidious while Maul was already, uh, or while Maul was still the apprentice, that it had to have been pre-Phantom <laughs> Menace. So it has been confirmed by Filoni. Oh, ho, ho, ho. okay. That, that, oh, yeah, absorbing that. <laughs> yeah, Darth Plagueis be damned. Um, <laughs> that brings us into, you realize that that means that if he was essentially a Sith, there were four Sith at one time. <laughs> Screw rule, the rule of uh, two. It, it's, it's like Barbosa said, it's more a guideline, really. <laughs> yeah, it's more a guideline than a rule. Um, all right, that brings us into another series that has been continuing, and that is the Yoda Chronicles. Uh, this year saw the new Yoda Chronicles uh, on Disney XD, including the episodes Escape from the Jedi Temple, Race for the Holocrons, Raid on Coruscant, and most recently Clash of the Skywalkers. I have to say, 
I find these fun little things. Uh, my wife and I love watching them together, and it's cool to see that unlike what they did with The Empire Strikes Out and before that, uh, The Padawan Menace, there really seems to be a through line going through the Yoda Chronicles where characters are returning, and it seems like, to a large degree, they're building off of previous stories. Maybe not all that much, but enough that it really feels like a series. Now I just wish we'd have them on home video outside of things like iTunes. Yeah, I, I get the feeling with this that this is our third universe. You know, you got Legends, you've got Canon, and then you've got Lego Star Wars. Uh, I kind of get a kick out of it. Uh, my son's the one that's caught him mostly, and I've I haven't got to sit down and watch any one of these yet from start to finish. Uh, but I've caught him, you know, towards the end or in the middle and stuff. And I was doing something else. I couldn't I couldn't focus on him. But my son's really getting a kick out of him, you know. And he's always loved the Lego games, especially the Star Wars ones. So, you know, seeing that aspect that they're, they're bringing characters back, uh, I can't think of what his name is, but he's got that force arm. Uh, he was that one clone that, that, that the, one of the whole stories is based off of him. Uh, just interesting to see him come back in one of the later stories. And I, I saw that they're going to have or they've already done uh, with Luke and Vader and them coming into it. And so it is kind of interesting to see that it's becoming its own little fleshed out little microverse. Now, speaking of the more kiddie, funny parody fair. This year also saw the the airing and release on home video of Phineas and Ferb Star Wars, an episode of that series uh, that was essentially a big Star Wars parody in and of itself. I found that really fun, really funny. It didn't have a bunch of off-color crap like Family Guy got into. I mean, Family Guy's uh, A New Hope one was all right, but after that it just became nuts. Like, you know, I love you, F you. Okay, you know. That was marginally funny, but there's only so much you can get into. And even then, the folks who watched the Family Guy, uh, A New Hope one, a lot of them took issue with the whole child molester Ben Kenobi thing. <laughs> um, but suffice to say, um, unlike those more off-color parodies that we got in the past, uh, Phineas and Ferb, a clean parody, fun, um, and a musical. You know, it's really, in a lot of ways, the first official Star Wars musical coming from Disney. It even has a friggin' soundtrack of its story, or of its, uh, uh, songs out there. Nice. I, I haven't had a chance to get this one, but I've heard nothing but high praises about it. Uh, it's one that I can't wait to actually watch. Maybe even buy. I know my kids, they love Phineas and Ferb for a while there. I've had the, uh, opening of that as a, as alarm clock for take the kids to the club. So, you know, yeah, it's it's a good show, and to to see that happen, you know, Star Wars branching out in this regard. You know, I know there's a lot of people out there that were all like, "Oh, great, we're gonna get everything themed Star Wars," and you know, you may be right, but at the same time, if it's done right like this, it can be a lot of fun, man. Before we get into the obvious, which would be Rebels and the teaser for The Force Awakens, uh, I should also note here that this year, or late last year, I think I believe it was this year, saw a wider release of an unusual version of A New Hope. A couple years ago, the Navajo Nation Museum got with Lucasfilm, and they created the first major motion picture to be dubbed entirely in the Navajo language. And that film was, of course, Star Wars A New Hope. And it got uh, some public showings, eventually got uh, a release on DVD in a very limited scale through the Navajo Nation Museum and to schools and whatnot, uh, and fairly recently, it has been made available in places like Walmart.com. So uh, this year did see a wider release of the historical, uh, culturally significant release of A New Hope, the Navajo Language Edition. I think it's just a kind of cool little thing to do in general. You know, I mean, I have no idea, 
you know, if I'll ever get it because I can't speak it. So <laughs> I can't read it. <laughs> so I don't know where we go with that. I be it just be like watching something in in you know one of those other foreign countries. You're like, hey, uh, they're speaking it all in French. Did we got the subtitle on here wrong? Is the audio switched off? Come on, switch it back. I, I don't know what they're saying. Ironically, on this release, you can use Spanish and English subtitles, but not Navajo. So, good mm. luck. Um, and that brings us, of course, to the biggies. Rebels being the first for Rebels. We were told recently that there were 16 episodes worth of content produced for this season, right? We had the Spark of Rebellion double-length episode that aired as almost like a standalone origin story. Uh, it has been released on DVD, by the way. It was released through ABC with an extra scene added into it, but it accounted for two of those 16. Uh as they went into the season, uh, getting everybody excited for it, there were four little shorts that together count as one of the 16 episodes. Those were The Machine and the Ghost, Art Attack, Entanglement, and one that was basically put out there and promoted as Property of Ezra Bridger, released online as Not What You Think, and then put onto the DVD again as Property of Ezra Bridger. Uh, that's the one that overlaps with the... Uh, the last chapter of Ezra's Gamble. And then, of course, the series really got going, and we've now seen seven of those episodes. Uh, we got Droids in Distress, Fight or Flight, Rise of the Old Masters, Breaking Ranks, Out of Darkness, Empire Day, and Gathering Forces. All of which, of course, you can hear on Rebels Roundtable. Uh, the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable at rebelsroundtable.com. Um, we, at this point, only have six episodes left. In Season 1, though we have been told, Season 2 has been greenlit. I personally have been loving Rebels. It really captures that Star Wars adventure feel that a lot of episodes of The Clone Wars lacked. Uh, and seems like, you know, nowhere to go but up from here. I'm very positive on Rebels. Yeah, Rebels has that, that Han meets up with Ben Kenobi and Luke and Chewie and they just flew off on the Falcon to the Death Star. It's like, it, it's that just expanded, you know? You got the two Jedi, you got all the other people along for the ride, you got your aliens, you got your droids, and it's them against the Empire. I, I, I don't know, I'm getting a kick out of the premise, I'm getting a kick out of the setting, uh, the ships, you know, the ships become a whole subject unto themselves on a few episodes until we finally figured things out. Uh, you have episodes like out of darkness. It seemed like it was just like a, a one, you know, like little filler episode at first, but then when you get to gathering forces and you go back to locations and stuff and the way things are used, just brilliant. Uh, you know, you have rise of the old masters, which was a great one that tied into elements and people and characters and stuff like that of the clone wars. They've done a really cool job of tying things in together. I mean, having Ben Kenobi show up in the, in the trailer, or not trailer, but the uh, the first DVD that they put out there, The Spark of Rebellion. All of this has is, is just been really fun so far. Uh, there's the other side of, you know, the figures and stuff. Like, I still haven't seen any. I want to get a chopper. You know, I'm, I'm digging on chopper. I, I can get a pillow of chopper, but I cannot get a figure anywhere I live. And I know there are people out there that they're seeing them hit their shelves and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, that's the one aspect about Rebels that I really, I feel like in a lot of ways, Disney's dropped the ball. Uh, you know, they, they did a really good premiere of the show, but the merchandise that goes along with the show, the handoff from, you know, uh, the, the whole aspect of legends being divided and stuff like that, what is and what isn't canon, 
they, they had that great announcement at one point, but beyond that, it, it just kind of all falls apart. And Rebels really, to me, I think that's hurting the show because you have this opportunity to really hook your fan base and there's not enough product out there. I mean, you know, yeah, the shirts and stuff are cool, but you know, my kid's not going to care about that, that, that stuffed animal version of chopper more than he is the actual figure. He's going to be able to play with that figure and take that figure everywhere. He takes that, that plush toy anywhere. He's going to get made fun of. I mean, as cool as they are, my, my son's almost 10 and carrying around a plush version of chopper is not as cool as a plastic one sitting in your pocket. And speaking of this whole idea of, like, hooking new people in, I know there are a lot of people out there, uh, probably in this listening audience, because we are so focused in a lot of times on the Legends continuity, uh, the, the books, the comics, and so forth that came before the announcement and whatnot, that have basically said, screw Rebels. I'm not going to watch Rebels because it's a new canon. It's not the continuity that I love. Or screw Rebels. It's just going to be another Clone Wars, and we know what Clone Wars did when it came in like a wrecking ball, so to speak, and tore through continuity of the Clone Wars. Um, have to say, folks, as long as you can get your brain around the whole idea that this is a separate continuity from what has come before, that it, the only things that exist in this continuity at this point, you know, are just a handful of things, including the films, Clone Wars, Rebels, and you know, a handful of novels and whatnot that are out there. Um, this is a really good series. This is a fun one to watch. I think you'd get into it. And if you're one of those fans who dislike what the prequels did to Star Wars in terms of changing the mood, changing the style of storytelling, uh, moving away from the fun, adventurous spirit and comedy that we got out of the original trilogy, you will be pleasantly surprised. This is the closest to capturing the original trilogy feel that I've seen in pretty much anything in Star Wars, I would probably say, ever outside of the three original trilogy films. So give this a chance if you're one of those who have said, screw it, on grounds of principle. You may be cheating yourself out of seeing something pretty cool. And speaking of something pretty cool to see, that of course brings us to the other major video release this year, which was, as we mentioned a little bit back in the first of our 2014 retrospective episodes here, um, the teaser for The Force Awakens. Though now... Thanks to Entertainment Weekly and StarWars.com, we have some names to go with some of the characters out of the teaser. Uh, cool teaser, some nitpicks on my part as far as certain concepts that seem dopey, though then again, the Inquisitor's lightsaber uh, in Rebels looked dopey until we actually saw it in action. But uh, yeah, this is probably uh, the shortest of any of the Star Wars video materials this year, and yet the one that, of course, has garnered the absolute most attention of the world at large. I was thoroughly teased. I truly had a case of blue milk. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you know, for what it was, I, I remember the first moment I was thinking this, this ain't real. I'd seen enough fan trailers out there, and I was watching it over my phone at first that I, I thought it was. And then John pops up, and I, whoa, oh my God, it's him. Uh, but, I, you know, I was with you on a few things, like, you know, the BB-8 or whatever the little ball droid is, is now called. I, I don't know. I, I was gimmicky. I wasn't really caring for him. It was interesting, though, to find out after the fact that it was not a CGI character that is actually a live prop. Uh, Mark Hamill confirmed that, I guess, and was even playing with it. Remote control, I guess. Uh, but I don't know. That that, that kind of kind of changes the way I'm looking at it. I'm a little more favorable to it, uh, especially the idea that maybe there'll be some of these being built by the uh, R2-D2 Droid Builders Club soon, hopefully. Anaheim Celebration, Anaheim, anyone? Uh, but there's that aspect. I was a fan of the Broadsaber. 
the new X-Wings, I know when they first mentioned the way that the wings were opening and closing, I was I knew immediately I was going to have to see it because hearing about it sounded really weird. And I wasn't able to quite wrap my head around the whole the front goes up and the back goes down kind of thing. But when I saw it in action, oh, my gosh, that was so glorious. Uh, and seeing it sweeping over the lake and stuff, I, I brilliant. Uh, the Millennium Falcon with the new dish, you know, I, again, I just I, I make sense. OK, yeah, I'm there. Uh, digging on that. Uh, but yeah, the broad saber, I, I like it. Like I, I like the idea that, and I think, you know, Steve Colbert, I, I added it to the episode we were talking about it where he was mentioning how it was one beam that kind of filled up and then, and then came out through the other sides. Uh, and that if you were to strike the metal part, you would just hit the beam down below it, that the metal is really there only to protect your hands. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting, uh, you know, and, and I, I could see that to a degree, the way it lit, it, it went from one end to the other. And then, you had the flare out of the cross guards. So I, I just, the look of it just had me right out the get go. Uh, you know, and, and I was that way with rebels too. Uh, the inquisitors one, I, I dug the Tron style look of it. It looked like the Tron discs that they wore on their back and functioned, you know, kind of similarly, uh, you know, it was cool. And in a lot of ways with, with the rebels one, it was a lot like the grievous toy, uh, pretty much a flat out knockoff almost. <laughs> I thought the teaser was pretty good. I mean, uh, exciting, but again, some little nitpicky things. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where these characters go. I do find the names kind of of interesting. I mean, we've got uh, Daisy Ridley's character is apparently named Ray, R-E-Y. No problem with that, unless she's going to become a blind singer or something. Then it seems like they're taking from something. Um, worked yeah. pretty well. Uh, BB-8, uh, lots of folks saying BB for beach ball. At this point, I thought more like a soccer ball than anything else. Still think that's kind of a goofy droid design, but apparently uh, it was a design that was previously existing in concept art that was then used for this mm -hmm. film. So, you know, maybe it's another thing where they're grabbing from old ideas and such, and we can't really blame J.J. Abrams for this particular oddity. And that's exactly what I think they're doing there, because I saw that same thing. It was a Macquarie concept for R2. Uh, and, and it's, it's like the X-Wing where I, I think I got to see it in action because the paint job, uh, there was an article about, you could get a 3d printed one of these made up now, uh, and, and the image of it, it, the paint job where it's got the yellow on the white, it almost looks like those parts either open up and things come out or their arms that are folded in on itself. Like maybe it does what the rolling, uh, droid decas do and they, they unroll and become the dr destroyer droid aspect where they're standing up. So, so I'm like, I'm, I'm open to seeing it in action more. And again, knowing it's a live prop definitely changed a lot of my original. Oh, I don't care for that. We've got Finn, apparently, uh, as our lead character. I do think it's kind of funny. They're like, oh, Finn, that doesn't sound Star Wars. He's like, Huck Finn, but we've already had Finn Galfridian before mm -hmm. in Invasion mm -hmm. that got his unsatisfactory, satisfactory ending. Uh, I'm impressed that they're making the leads apparently a woman and a black man. Because Star Wars needs a level of diversity that in a lot of cases it seemed like it had started to lack again. Uh, I gotta say, uh, I, I'm seeing this a lot actually now within the story group canon. Uh, we've got Zara Leonis, who shows up as a non-white character in Rebels and gets his own... Servants of the Empire book series that's out there right now by Jason Fry. I just yep. started reading Heir to the Jedi, and while I don't know much of any of the characters, I'm only probably 20 pages in, the character who owns the ship that lay, that uh, Luke is flying at the beginning of the story, we briefly get to meet. And she's a black woman. Um, 
Star Wars is finally starting to recognize that not every character who's human needs to be white. Now well, just is... maybe not every character who's Imperial needs to have a British accent. Uh, but that was cool. I do like seeing uh, Poe Dameron, name that sounds like he could go either way, you know, Poe as in Edgar Allen and such, um, as our X-Wing pilot. Uh, I was kind of sitting back going, really? Uh, with, was it Kylo Ren? Uh, yeah. As the, the guy with the, the crazy flaming saber looking thing that, and I would say to Stephen Colbert, of course, that, yeah, it makes sense if it's three different beams coming out uh, all from the same source, that if it sliced through the middle part, it would hit the beam. But if it's really that controlled, why isn't it burning its way through the emitters on either side, the, the cylindrical parts on either side? But we'll just have to see that in action and see if they ever give us any kind of explanation as to how it's supposed to work. Uh, I did find myself yeah. facepalming, though. Really? Kylo Ren? Reminds me a lot of Kaibo Ren or Kaibo Ren Cha, <laughs> the pirate from droids. They're going really, really close to some pre-existing character names that are so close, Finn might have been an accident. But Kylo Ren versus Kaibo Ren Cha or Kaibo Ren, there's no way that was an <laughs> accident. What yes. are they doing with these names, I gotta wonder? Well, okay, Finn Calrissian. You know, I think that's got a nice twist to it. You know, a good sound kind of rolls off the tongue. Uh, you know, another thing you had mentioned about, you know, the diversity with, with John's character being black, uh, in a new dawn, we have stormtroopers that are female. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm digging that, you know, there's been this discussion about, you know, how, how is the empire still being portrayed? You know, when we saw a new hope back in 1977, not me, I wasn't alive yet, but I was there a little later, uh, the Empire was this, you know, male chauvinistic. It was, they were all white. At least that was kind of what the, you, you had this impression that they were all a bunch of white guys and they all were male and it was all just this evil kind of Nazi like society. And now it's like, okay, well, now we're finding out some of the stormtroopers are women. I mean, what if we find out that like lady stormtroopers wear the exact same armor as the guys? Like, you know, you could find out that the whole time on the Death Star that half the, you know, the stormtroopers there were female. You know, I mean, there's now no way to know. I mean, I, I love the idea that everything is new and fresh. And that, of course, includes design for TIE Fighters, the new dish on uh, the Millennium Falcon, the new design for the X-Wings that you mentioned, the new design for the Stormtroopers. Um, lots of new, fresh things coming out of this. I just hope they handle everything well. But it certainly has the feel, in a lot of ways, of a reboot. It's not a reboot per se. It sort of is. It's a new continuity with new films, but they're based on those previous ones. It's not like saying that the previous films didn't exist um, like, say, Battlestar Galactica saying that the previous version of that didn't exist and whatnot. But it's interesting to see that Star Wars, conceptually, is growing with the times in a lot of ways. More so, I mean, with the prequels, Star Wars grew with the times, but it seemed to grow with the times in terms of the technology of the filmmaking and the CGI, more so necessarily than the aesthetic of society around it. We're starting to sort of see that, it seems, with The Force Awakens, which, again goes back in a lot of ways to the original trilogy and how, you know, in a time when the Vietnam War had was just ending, as we go into the, the latter days of the Cold War with uh, Reagan and Gorbachev and all, that you had essentially a positive feeling of storytelling in there, but trying to reflect some of the best of what we, you know, what we aspire to, and bringing in Leia, for instance, as a strong female character to reflect the change in society at the time. So it'll be interesting to see how sociologically we'll be able to look back at this new film series. And of course, along with the trailer, uh, even before that, 
we got the name of the film, which became the subject of endless, endless online joking, The uh-huh. Force Awakens. I still think that's kind of an odd title, but now that at least we got some of that Andy Circus narration out of the teaser, it suggests things philosophically about the Force that hadn't been the case previously within the Legends continuity. But again, I guess I'm open to a fresh take on that that might even make some of the references made in the prequels to things like the dark side clouding everything clearer, or perhaps things from the Mortis trilogy <laughs> clearer as we go <laughs> along. Uh, and maybe even things from Yoda's time with the Force priestesses make more sense when it goes along. It'd be nice to see a unified vision of the Force that connects everything together being revealed through Force Awakens. Yeah, and another thing about it that also added to some of the debate and the direction of the marketing and stuff was the fact that they dropped Episode 7 from the title. Uh, you know, most of us think without a doubt in our minds that when the crawl happens, it'll still say Episode 7, The Force Awakens. You know how it goes also to Star Wars? It was just Star Wars. It wasn't A New Hope. Uh, so you've got that aspect. And I know I've talked with about 8 to 12 different people just about that concept alone because it, it was interesting to them and I hadn't thought about it. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, you got a point. So does Riley and so does this person. So, yeah. See, I'm not buying that Episode 7 won't be there. And the fact that it's not on the one logo that we've seen, to me, doesn't mean a freaking thing. Um, mm-hmm. With the prequels, they were focusing on the fact that they were prequels. So we got Episode 1 before we got Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, and Episode 1 became a big part of how they advertised that film in the logo. And then the logos for Episodes 2 and 3 were based around the logo that had been used for Episode 1. So, of course, Episode 1, Episode 2, Episode 3 is prominent with the little title underneath. But if you go back and you look at the classic trilogy, never were there advertisements of, you know, The Empire Strikes Back, it's Star Wars, Episode 5. No, they were advertising The Empire Strikes Back. Then they were advertising Revenge of the Jedi, then Return of the Jedi. And, of course, Star Wars never got a new hope in any of its campaign advertising materials whatsoever. Even whenever we saw uh, the release as the Special Edition trilogy, it still called it Star Wars Special Edition. Empire Strikes Back Special Edition, and so on and so on. The fact that it says The Force Awakens and no Episode 7 in this advertising, to me, means absolutely nothing. I still expect Episode 7 to be on the opening crawl, assuming there is an opening crawl. Uh, what I'm more interested to see is, out of these spin-off movies, will they have episode numbers? How will they handle their opening crawl? And how will they handle their advertising? But I don't think at this point we can say anything or assume anything about whether the episode number seven is going to actually be attached to Force Awakens or not. I think that either way, to assume it will be there or it won't be there, it's assumption-based on hardly any facts whatsoever. It's too early to call it. And that brings us into, I guess you could say, sort of the other side of things for this year. Um, We've already spoken a lot about the end of Dark Horse with Star Wars. We did our whole Dark Horse retrospective, talked about it a lot when we talked comics. We talked a lot about the end of the Legends continuity, in, or mostly the end of the Legends continuity, in favor of story group canon and the announcement that went with that. We did several episodes about that, feedback episodes about that, and talked about that in bits and pieces, fits and starts, throughout all of our year-in-review episodes here. We also dealt with the fact that there were no new Star Wars console games this year when talking about video games. Uh, I would say two things stand out to me for this year. Um, One we dealt with in an episode in and of itself, which was the passing of Aaron Alston, who 
uh, left a huge mark on the Legends continuity and who I myself am saddened to see because of his passing will never have a chance to contribute to story group canon. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing that stands out to me, and then we'll see what stands out to you, Mark, um, is some of the announcements for Marvel. We talked about this a lot when we talked about the uh, comics changing hands and everything in our comic retrospective last week. But we have some new information that I wanted to share. Um, at the time of recording last time, uh, we talked about how there were 20-plus different versions being solicited already for Star Wars number one. And how this, to us, is overblown, and it's Marvel going over the top when it comes to variants of an issue. How Dark Horse did it somewhat with things like the variants of Star Wars Volume 2, number one, but now Marvel's taking it up another notch. Well, one of our friends out there, Carlos, uh, who runs the Star Wars comic books page on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash swcomics. He has been tracking all the different versions that are out there. And as of right now when we are recording this, unless something else has been announced today, understand, folks, that if you count variants and versions of Marvel's Star Wars number 1 that's coming in January, there are now 76 different ones out there. There is one regular cover. There are 15 regular variants, which already is ridiculous, solicited and distributed directly through Marvel, mostly through their Welcome Home launch party events. Then, different comic shops who order a certain number of copies can have an exclusive comic shop variant for that particular store or chain of stores, and as of now, there are 35 of them. Then there are five different versions that are the exclusive comic shop commission covers, but they are either variants or tweaked versions of those, or they are signed versions of those that are being given out as a separate version uh, with a limited number of editions of that. Then Dynamic Forces, the same people who did those, hey, let's do limited editions of Star Wars Volume 2 Number 1 and let's have them be called different versions and have different limited edition numbers of them depending on what the writer or Alex Ross or whoever it was, what color pen they signed in, has 20 different versions of Star Wars Number 1 coming in January. Um, some of these are remarked sketch covers, some are signed versions of the regular cover, some are signed versions of the variant covers, all of which will be in those Dynamic Forces bags with little certificates of authenticity, and so on. 76 variants of one comic. When I think of this, and I think of seeing all these covers laid out, and he has on his page laid out so we can see all the different covers, I'm reminded of Robot Chicken. Robot Chicken did a parody of Iron Man, the first Iron Man movie, in which instead of Tony Stark, it was Dick Cheney who was in there who came out as Iron Man after having to be worked on because of his heart condition and such. And as he steps out, terrorists come at him, and every time he blasts one, he chants the same mantra every time before he pulls the trigger. Go F yourselves. I sit back, and I look at this number of variants, and I can keep flipping through the list of them, the different photo gallery bits on Facebook, and sit back and aside from, you know, just the idea that there is a regular issue, as we go through these variants, I'm sitting back here saying, hey Marvel, go F yourself, go F yourself, go F yourself, go F yourself. Marvel, this is effing ridiculous. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Mark? <laughs> well, see, okay, I I didn't realize that that was taking into consideration all the different store variants, though. 
Uh, honestly, knowing that, I think that's actually a small number. Um, you know, my local comic store, I, I used to work for the guys that run it. Uh, they had a store and then they moved across town. When they were at the old location, I worked for there – was, there was this guy named Jeff who now runs the store now. And he had two different partners. And I was his partner's uh, go-to it guy both times. So it was like I was always Jeff's partner's number two. And now that Jeff runs the store, you know, we sit back and we chat about different things. And when Marvel did their Amazing Spider-Man uh, variant for this, he desperately wanted to get a store version of it. Uh, and he told me about everything that goes along with it, about how, you know, you have to pre-order a certain amount of them. At, and I think they were like at $9 a cover. Uh, and he would get to pick the artist from all the different Marvel artists out there. And then he would get to uh, approve the design for his store. And it was every store that wanted to do that could do it. And it created this really cool variant for the store that was unique for the store and it helped the store. Uh, but it was also, you know, you had your regular variants in there as well. And Marvel has always gone crazy with their variants, with there being a whole buttload of them. Um, you know, I remember seeing variants of comics for symbionts because I'm a Venom fan. And all of a sudden there was this, all these symbiont covers. And it was really for nothing going on. It was just all of a sudden they were just doing it. And I was like, what the hell? But knowing that those store ones are out there and also are being counted in there, it's like, oh, well, no wonder the number's so up there. Uh, you know, I mean, that actually makes a lot more sense than what I originally thought. I thought Marvel was putting out just 76 different variants, but they, but offering that and having these people take advantage of that, uh, you know, it, it makes me curious what the number would be without those store variants that they're able to pre-purchase, uh, you know, and how much that would change the number, how much Marvel is actually themselves offering up. I can answer the question for you, how many there would be. Um, now, understand, I'm, maybe I'm getting more annoyed with this. I'm not a completionist in terms of getting every different version of a comic. The one time I tried to do that um, was with all the hype around Star Wars Volume 2, Number 1, just to see if I could do it. And I finally gave up on the sketch covers and some of the signed stuff because I was just like, you know, that's ridiculous to have different versions signed in different colors and have it considered different editions. Um, I've tended to read digital comics for everything but Star Wars in recent years. Injustice Gods Among Us, The Walking Dead, uh, IDW's Transformers line and such, I get those as digital. So there's only one version to get. And even before that, when I was getting physical comics a lot, it was stuff like Farscape, and it was Star Wars. And Star Wars didn't tend to have much in the way of variants. Farscape did sometimes, but I really didn't care which cover happened to be sent my way. Um, it's just never really been my thing. Um, I remember the glut of insanity of the 1990s, when... You would have all kinds of variant covers, gold covers, silver covers, embossed covers, holographic covers. Um, mm -hmm. X-Men number one with its five different covers, not counting any uh, exclusive covers or anything like that. Um, I thought it was widely recognized that that kind of idiocy was part of why the comic industry crashed as bad as it did coming out of the 90s. Um, that we had realized that variants are cool and all if it's to specific situations and somewhat limited as opposed to being a glut that just looks like the blatant cash grab that it is, and that winds up, by its very nature, screwing over completionists to some degree. Uh, with Star Wars Volume 2, at least you could get most of them still pretty easily, um, but you'd have to probably get your GameStop ones online if you didn't have a bunch of GameStop points already uh, saved up. Uh, same thing with that one uh, shop-exclusive one that was out there, and you got to go through dynamic forces if you're looking for the signed ones. But at least they're readily available to most people. 
This is so beyond the pale to me that it's it's almost unfathomable. Ridiculous isn't a strong enough word to describe it. Um, of the 76 versions, okay, 20 of them are dynamic forces versions, which means remarked sketch covers, signed versions of the regular covers, signed versions of the variants. Okay, fine. Let's dump the dynamic forces stuff. Dynamic forces always tends to do the signed stuff, sometimes remarked. They always have their little... Uh, limited to however many out of however many, and the little certificate that goes with it with their little, you know, special holographic sticker that closes it up when it's put in the bag. Fine. You drop Dynamic Forces, you're still at 56 different versions. And granted, there are five of them that are exclusive comic shop commission variants that are signed. Okay, those are official versions, but if you want to say those don't count, let's drop those and just stick with the regular exclusive comic shop versions. We are still, though, at that point, at 51 different versions. Uh, the exclusive comic shop commission variants, I think this, as cool as it is for the comic shops, and as much as it might drive people to the brick-and-mortar comic shops instead of ordering stuff online or getting the digital comics, I think this is where Marvel has flipped the bird at completionist collectors. The idea with Star Wars or anything else that basically any comic shop that wants to can have its own variant cover is awesome for the comic shop. And I used to work at a comic shop as well. Um, for years, I worked at comic shop, uh, comic shop at a comic shop called Comic Quest, uh, ComicQuest.com up in Evansville, Indiana. Huge comic shop. Loved working there. Um, and I can see the draw for the actual shop itself. But for a fan, this sucks. The number of ones out there. The bigger it gets, the mm -hmm. I mean, they're hard enough to find for that specific shop anyway, unless you can order it online through the shop, which some places allow and some places don't, um, just in terms of what they're set up for. There's going to be a lot of eBay scrambling and such for this, and people who are completionists are going to get screwed. But mm -hmm. even if we drop those and say, okay, that's a special situation that's somewhat unique to Marvel, so let's leave out the comic shop exclusive variants as sort of a, a, a separate deal. That still leaves you with one regular cover and 15 variants that are standard Marvel-distributed, non-comic shop-exclusive variant covers. One story, 16 covers, one regular, 15 variants. That, to me, goes above and beyond virtually anything we saw back in the 1990s glut of insanity. Um, I had John Jackson Miller weighing in on this on Facebook, talking about uh, one series or one company years ago that would uh, number different covers so that literally every single one of their issues for every single one of their comics yeah. was technically a variant because of some slight variation to really play into that. But aside from that kind of insanity, that's more of a gimmick than anything else. I can't think of a time in the 90s where we ran into something that had this many variants of just the regular variants. 15 plus the regular one? And all these others. To say there is a new Star Wars comic launching and people are excited about it and that it's going to have a lot of hype. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to happen. It happened with Star Wars Volume 2 also and now it's going back to Marvel and they're really, really hyping it up. The first comic outside of Son of Dathomir of the new continuity. Really hyping it up. But 76 variants and versions and a count that is still increasing with less than a month to go until the release. To me, that is beyond asinine. And again, Marvel, if they are, re if, if Marvel, the people at Marvel give one iota of a shit 
about their fans should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. From a business perspective, it makes sense. Bring in the money. Bring in the money to the comic shops, bring in the money to Dynamic Forces, bring in the money to Marvel with all of the variants. They can milk this for all that it's worth. But for the fans, it sucks. Yeah, 16, you know, it, that is excessive even for Marvel. I mean, I think back to Venom, uh, Lethal Protector. That's one that I got a couple of. They had a gold, they had a uh, black, and then they had the regular uh, red version. You know, three or four seemed to be about, you know, a big event. Uh, 16 seems crazy amount. Uh, you know, yeah, coming back to Star Wars as they're calling coming home, as, as they say and stuff, is a big deal to them. And I guess that that's where they're throwing it at. It, but that number still seems excessive. The Comic Shock exclusives that we were talking about, that is kind of a, a tough one because you've got the comic stores themselves as a consumer – and then a level below them, the consumer consumer that, that consumes it all. And when you've got those completionists, it is going to be harder for them because, like I said, it, it's an option offered. I remember Jeff with, uh, you know, Amazing Spider-Man number one. He had to come up with, I think it was like $3,000 up front to, to be able to do it. And so it was like it was this great opportunity. But like he said, he just didn't have that kind of money laying around to take advantage of it. Uh, and, and so even when in this situation, it's like. I, there, I'm surprised that many stores are able to take advantage of it or that many are actually banking on it in that regard. Because like he said, you know, it, it would help his store a lot because he would know they were going to sell. And I was telling him then, I'm like, man, you, you should put up a list, you know, and be like, hey, who would commit to, to buying this now? You know, because like I told him I, I'd buy two, you know, knowing that that was the case. Uh, so because there is that aspect to support your local comic store. Uh, but I could see how at the same time it's like, you know, to support my local comic store, somebody from down in like Australia or something, they're not going to be able to buy the iguana exclusive. You know, not if he's only able to get 500 of them. You know, I mean, so yeah, it, it it's a, a weird line there with you know how you're going to do it. I do like the aspect that they're offering it though to comic book shops uh, to to have that to have your comic store logo on it and stuff and have something that's exclusive like that. One of the big things that sell. Uh, for Jeff down at his comic shops are the variants. You know, a lot of people, they get their regular stuff, but the, the variants are where a lot of the extra money is made. You know, a lot of variants they can't even get unless they order a certain amount of that comic, which means they're committed to selling that amount of that comic or holding on to it as backstock and selling it at a cheaper price that they've taken a loss for. So there's those marketing angles that come into it as well. Uh, but Jeff says when he goes to conventions and stuff, the main amount of money that he makes on stuff that they sell are their variants. There their variants that they have extras that hadn't sold locally in the store mostly move at the conventions and that's where they make a lot of their extra money. So it, it's it's a weird aspect that that is I, I don't say unique to Marvel because DC does a very similar thing with their holographic covers. Uh, but but I think, you know, for you, uh, because you're doing electronics, it's something that you're not more accustomed to as, as I am. I've been seeing it a lot lately since I came back, you know, when KOTOR came back and I got back into comics I was very relieved that Dark Horse didn't do that uh, because I'm I'm a huge Spider-Man fan and, and all the different variants I had I had to early on say you know I'm unless it's a really kick-ass variant I'm not going the route of variants anymore I mean I did back in the 90s but I fell victim to that same plight that you were talking about that you know you would have thought Marvel would have evolved out of but at the same time Marvel's still jacking the comic price up slowly but surely too it makes me wonder if a big part of this is not the push against digital. That so many people have so many devices out there that they'd rather read digital comics on 
whether it's cheaper or the same price, that you have to have something to draw people into a physical comic shop and to draw people to buy physical comics. Now, for Marvel, it mm -hmm. shouldn't matter that much anyway because Marvel's selling the digital subscription versus Marvel selling a physical comic. You would think that it's the digital version that's going to make them more profit anyway. But comic shops that order a bulk of, of comics, you know, they're talking about how it's going to sell more than a million copies. Well, yeah, you're talking about how much it's selling in terms of copies sent out to the comic shops, not how many the comic shops themselves are going to sell. We don't know that number yet. Um, I wonder if it's, it's, it's a fight against digital. It's, it's like, you know, Barnes and Noble, you know, needs to do some kind of special events, sometimes specials, mm -hmm. books a million, needs to do something special to get people to buy a book that's a physical book rather than buying something for an e-reader. I'm, I'm always shocked to walk into the Books a Million over in Peachtree City, Georgia, about 10 miles away from here, give or take, when I see very many people in there whatsoever. But most of the people yeah. in there are browsing, looking at stuff, and you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, this looks good, but I'm not going to pay that cover price. I'll wait, and when I get home, I'll get it off my Kindle or something mm -hmm. like that, you know? Um, so it makes business sense, even if it screws the customers, um, and yes, uh, it, it may be tied into the whole digital fight. Uh, I would argue that, you know, you made the, the, the statement that, you know, maybe because I do it mostly digital now that I'm just not used to it and that, hey, well, DC does the same thing. Just because something is the norm doesn't make it right. Yeah. Doesn't absolutely. make it something that I think from a, if you're thinking about your collectors, I'm not sure to what degree this is ethical. If you're thinking about it from a business standpoint, of course it's ethical. Anything goes. If there mm -hmm. is a market for it, they will buy it. If you build it, they will come. Um, but just because others did it doesn't make it any more right than the idiocy back in the 90s when it comes to the standpoint of a collector. And I'm concerned. I, I think about people like Eddie Vanderheiden or Carlos. Um, and I think about them as completionists. Uh, Joseph Clock, uh, who is the guy that I've worked out some things with with the Star Wars RPG and whatnot over the last few years. Um, I worry about what they're going to run into because I've listened enough to Star Wars action news and such and, and spent time talking to Arnie and Jerry and all those guys over there who are also in many cases part of RFRN and now Rebels Roundtable um, talking about the scalpers with toys. Oh, look, new toys come in. They're going to grab up the hot ones or the hard-to-find ones or the limited to however many per case ones, and they don't get them for themselves. They don't get them to collect them. They get them to stick on eBay and make a ridiculous return on their purchase on them, and in doing so, screw over anybody who's just a regular consumer trying to find these toys in their stores. Good luck finding any of the really sought-after Star Wars toys in stores at all anymore, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to action figures. Uh, I worry that this is the same thing we're going to see here. It's different if your local comic shop gets an exclusive variant and say they've got a hundred of them. And a hundred people who go to that store regularly, who want to support the store, who love the store, and who want to pick up that comic, pick up that variant. It is a mark of loyalty for them, an exclusive deal for the comic shop, and they get to make some money off of it. Hopefully enough money to balance out the money they paid to get that exclusive done for them in the first place. And it gives them sort of a mark of recognition for people outside of their immediate area to seek that comic and seek out their name and maybe go and buy stuff on their online store they otherwise wouldn't have. Fine. But what if you got a hundred copies of that and 70 of them get snatched up by people who have no intention of supporting the store? They don't give a crap about the store. They're buying them, sitting on them for a couple weeks, and putting them out on eBay only, specifically as scalpers. Now, 
free society, you're more than welcome to buy something, turn around and resell it, and sell it for what the market will bear. I've been an economics teacher. It's not something that has necessarily a moral aspect to it when you look at it from an economic standpoint. Economics tries mm -hmm. to be morally ambivalent. It's about uh, profit motive, doing what is best for you, not choosing to do things that are harmful to you. That's kind of the way that profit motive is said to work. But just from the standpoint of what it does to other collectors out there, and the scalpers, of course, don't care. They're out there selling for what they can get for themselves. Just It's just like the collectors are trying to buy them for as cheap as possible for themselves economically. Yeah, um, they probably got another collection they're feeding. <laughs> it's just, it's, I find it reprehensible that this is the situation that Marvel is feeding. By doing this and allowing these special variants, there is a lot of positivity that may come to it for the, for that particular store. But whether it's a good thing or not, looking at it from, from a detached perspective, we have to weigh that against what about the people trying to buy it? What about the customers? And for a lot of customers, especially those not in the immediate area, those who are completionists, mm -hmm. I really feel for them because yeah. you know this is a scalper's dream when it comes to comics in this. Yeah. Well, you, you nailed it when you said it's the fight against, you know, digital. Because uh, a lot of the comics right now, their prices have gone up and they come. The physical editions come with uh, the the electronic version you know the e-reader code you type it in and there there it is uh but there's that side of me that's like you know sometimes i don't even use them half the time i mean i should be but i'm like you know i leave it in its mint condition and, and leave it closed so it's almost like you know maybe they should have the one at the 4.99 like they have with that little thing in there but maybe they should still offer one at 2.99 or 3.99 that doesn't have that in there at all you know i mean there's there's definitely that move towards it. I think that that the variant issue is definitely the comic industry's cry for, you know, we got to make some profit here, too. I don't know. I, I don't see it as a trend that's going to end. So I guess we just kind of have to learn to live with it. But I would love to see industry media for the comic industry actually take a look at the circumstances surrounding Star Wars number one and all of its different versions and variants and take a real critical eye to what does it mean for that industry going forward. I think that at least would allow there to be some measure of positivity and a force, if not for change, but at least for introspection within the community and within the industry uh, moving forward. At least there'd be something positive in that sense coming out of it, that it's not just a frustrating situation for many, and then it just gets dropped. Use it as a talking point. Bring up the conversation. Absolutely. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, 
or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash legend questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible Trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 audiobook titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without being stuck with the book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Marvel's favorite guy, Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll get some fiery emails for our feedback episodes coming up based on the whole issue of Marvel and the Variants. Or the odds that hashtag continue legends will take fire. Nope, nope, not gonna happen. Not seeing it. I know no, that makes me, that makes me the odd one out, but I don't see it. I, I don't see it. I'm just gonna keep trying. I'm I'm gonna be the uh, what do you call it? The hopelessly de- in denial. <laughs> about Star Wars and so do we. This episode we take a look once more at 2004's run of Star Wars goodies. This episode I'm pretty sure you just said 2004. I did, didn't I? I had it wrote down right. Okay. Now consider that your sport... Your sport...